Hello, my name is Jason Drury. On Tuesday, the 2nd of January, 2024, film music lost one of its greatest engineers, Mike Ross Trevor. His collaborations with composers such as Jerry Goldsmith and Bruce Broughton have become legendary in the film music world. He retired to live in Broadstairs in Kent, only a few miles down the Fanic coast from me in Ramsgate. Last year, Mike came out of retirement one last time to record re-recordings of Bernard Herrmann's scores for A Man Who Knew Too Much and On Dangerous Ground, showing that he still knew his way round a recording deck. In February 2018, I had the sincere pleasure to talk to him for the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast Network for two shows I produced, which are still available to listen to on cinematicsound.net. Since then, we have been in regular contact, and only a week before his death, we talked about his sessions on Howard Blake's score on the animated film The Bear. I have enjoyed meeting Mike face-to-face for coffee at a local Costa during the time I was working on the shows. I still have very fond memories of our interview on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast, and I know he's always been a friend of the station ever since. So when I heard of his passing, it was a huge shock to me. So what I decided to do was to create a new show, using original interview clips from our chat in 2018, as well as playing some of the great music he is associated with. To make the show unique and more personal, the only voice you will hear throughout will be Michael Trevor's, telling the story of his own recording career and also sharing some of the memories of the great recording sessions he has worked on. So here now is a Cinematic Sound Radio podcast's tribute to my friend, the late, great, Michael Trevor. Enjoy. Well, when I was at school, I took a great interest in electronics. I was mad about ripping apart radios and televisions. And when I left school, I joined a small company that repaired radio televisions. So I worked there for a while. And then I managed to get hold of an old turntable and I built my own amplifier and speaker cabinet. I only need to build one speaker cabinet as it was mono in those days. And I started buying music. And that's really how I got hooked into music. And of course, in those days, when you bought an album, there were things like sleeve notes. And on the sleeve notes, they would talk about the recording session. And there would always be pictures of people in the studio recording with microphones. And this sort of struck my attention. And I thought, oh, now this seems like a, a good thing to get into. So that's really how my interest in music started. It was a combination of music and electronics. I then got a little bit depressed about working for a TV servicing company because it wasn't that creative. It was very formulaic. So I decided that I would try and get into sound engineering. I knew I'd have to start at the bottom, but I didn't mind that. So I sat down and I wrote to every studio in London and obviously got turned down by virtually everybody. But I got one yes coming for an interview from a small record company in New Bond Street and they were called Oriel Records. Now I didn't particularly want to work for Oriel Records because they were a very, very small company, but it was the only bite I got really. So I went along, I had a very quick interview and of course in those days interviews were very short if you looked right and, and said the right things they gave you the job and that's exactly how it happened so I went in at the bottom 
as a runner, I used to make a tea, run errands, help set up the studio, put chairs out, music stands, all that kind of thing. And then I started to give me a few little engineering jobs like copying tapes, that kind of thing. And I then started staying behind at night. Now, all the recording sessions back then were usually late afternoon evenings. So I used to stay behind in my own time and just watch, just watch sessions endlessly for months on end and picked up a lot of knowledge during that period of time. I hadn't been engineering at all. I mean, I'd, I'd watched people and I knew I could do it. And it was quite lucky. Somebody left, the main engineer who was working there left because he wanted to start his own studio. So they were a little bit stuck. The studio manager could actually engineer at good sessions and he did from time to time, but he wasn't too interested in doing the pop side of things. So he gave me a chance. He, he a client signed up and wanted to book the studio. He was a German arranger, producer called Mark Wurtz. You may have heard of him. He's famous now for Ballad of the Teenage Opera. But at that time, he was just doing regular recording assignments for our music library. And he came in, and the first session I did with him was a piece of music called Touch with Velvet Sting of Brass, which has become quite famous because a lot of people picked it up at the time as their signature tune for radio shows. And I got on very well with Mark. He was very pleased with the recording, and he sent a very nice letter to the studio manager saying what a brilliant engineer I was, which is quite ironical, really, considering I only done one session. So the studio manager was very impressed. So suddenly, I was the studio's rock engineer, and that's basically how it all started. At that time, I was working with um, Paul Nye Donovan, the Tremolos, Marmalade, um, Georgie Fame. Yeah, early Fleetwood Mac when they were a blues band with Peter Green, um, Chicken Shack. I'd recorded Albatross by Big Claim. <laughs> also record a band called The Love Affair, you may remember. They had a big number one in 69 with Everlasting Love. Hearts on a strain Keeping her when they go I went away Just when you Welcome, love, be once new. 
Well, you know, at that time, there were many studios in London and, and they were kind of run by mainly one engineer with a name. And there are those and people know those names. So basically, people went into the studio and they wanted the main man. The first time I started getting into film music, um, I became a real fan of the classic film score series, which was conducted by Charles Gearhart and which was recorded at the old Kingsway Hall in in London, and they were recreations of classic film schools from the golden age of Hollywood. So I, I became a great fan of those, and I, and I still think even today the sound on those is sensational. I then started listening to obviously people like Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams. The one I did like, and I played quite a lot, was the re-recording of the Herman score for Cape Fear, which I thought was wonderful. And also, I'm a great fan of Bernard Herman anyway. I mean, I like nearly everything he's ever done. I mean, it's it really gets to me. And I, I can listen to Bernard Herrmann for real pleasure. My first major film assignment was Legend with Jerry Goldsmith. But up until that point, I was recording a lot of TV, small TV dramas, background music, that kind of thing. And But my first full feature cinema film in 5.1 was Legend. I mean, I was very nervous, obviously. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my first cinema film with Jerry Goldsmith, you know. <laughs> you know, it would have been easier if it was somebody lesser. But I was kind of thrown in the deep end. But the thing is, it started really not with recording the music for Legend. It started with Jerry just hiring the studio to record some playback material for the set. 
he came in, we did the dress walls, and we did the fairy dance. And the only reason, really, that Jerry used our studio, which at that time was CBS, was because Sid Saps, who is the leader of the National Philharmonic, recommended me to Jerry. So Jerry came in to do the playback material. He'd already booked CTS to record Legend with Alan Snelling, and he came in, and he was so impressed with the sound that he said, I want to do the whole score here. And then he cancelled CTS. So that for me, that was a, a lucky break, really. My main memories of it was, I suppose, I think of um, the fact that we were recording electronics and orchestra at the same time, which was new to me. Normally you'd record an orchestra and then you'd overdub the electronics, but, but Jerry likes to hear the complete cue all in one go. So that was difficult for me. And what we had to do, our recording console wasn't large enough to be able to take all the inputs, so we had to hire in an extra mixer, which we had on the side to cope with all the electronics, because there were so many.
Yes, again, at CBS with electronics and orchestra. Uh, Bruce Botney was due to, to engineer that, Rambo 2, and um, he was already booked. But Jerry said to Bruce, Mike's done such a great job on Legend, he said, I'd like him to have a go at Rambo 2. So Bruce was fine, and Bruce is a nice guy, and I get on very well with him. But he came over, the, the producer was a little bit nervous that Jerry was trying out this new boy, i.e. me. And the producer, this was Andrew Vanya, said to Bruce Botney, I'd like you to come as well, just in case, you know, the guy doesn't cut it. So basically, it was a bit of a strain, really. Here, here I was on my second session with Jerry, really, in a way, being supervised by Bruce Botney, hanging around in the background. So for me, it felt a little uncomfortable. But it, it worked out fine in the end. Yes, it did. Yeah.
Jerry said to me, he said, well, I'm going to go to Hungary to do a score. Now, the reason why we ended up in Hungary is because Andrew Vanya, who was the producer of Rambo, was Hungarian. And he wanted to kind of give something back to Hungary. So he asked Jerry if he would do a score in, in Hungary, which was a nice thought. Jerry was nervous about going in there. He didn't know what the orchestras were like. We didn't know what the technical facilities were like. So we went over there very nervously. We didn't know what to expect. So Jerry said to me, look, he said, I'm not going to use clicks on this one because I just don't think they can play with a click. So I don't know how good they are. And he said, they're an opera orchestra. They're used to accompanying. They're not used to doing full upfront action film scores. So I'm keeping it very simple, very basic. He said, we won't do any electronics. We'll go straight to magnetic film, no mixing. We'll keep it absolutely simple. So that was the plan. And it worked out very well. We went over there. The orchestra was fine. Obviously, they didn't have the spark or the energy of a London orchestra. But it, it turned out fine. It was good. The, the first visit was King Solomon's Mines. Yes, it's a good spot. It works very well. But for Jerry, after coming out of, say, Rambo 2 or Legend, it was a very simple score. Because it had to be. Because he didn't, he didn't know how good they were.
The second time we went back, it got a little bit more ambitious because he then said, okay, I'm going to see what they're like playing with clicks. So Kenny Hall, his music editor, prepared a click track. We went back and they weren't quite used to the click. They weren't quite on it, but it was okay. It wasn't too bad. We then had to go back again. This would be the third time. We were going to do a film called Lionel. Um, now, this was all to click, but we were very lucky this time because we didn't get the Hungarian State Orchestra. We got the Hungarian State Orchestra, which is the symphonic orchestra. They're not always available because they do a lot of concerts, so they're always, they're always out of town. Now, this was a different orchestra altogether. I mean, they did have the energy and spark of the London Orchestra, and there was a lot of weight. And Jerry was very excited because Lionheart turned out really, really well and very, very pleased with the results. It was up to UK and American standards, so we were delighted.
when we went to record Hoosiers, this was a very, very ambitious project. Jerry was all out to, to go the full way. We did have the Hungarian State Opera Orchestra. We took out a drummer from the UK, a guy called Harold Fisher, who was going to play syndromes, and three keyboard players. The problem was we couldn't put the drummer in the studio with the orchestra because we'd end up with syndromes all over the string tracks. So we actually put Harold in an office and with closed-circuit TV, and we had the three keyboard players. But the trouble is the the console at the studio... Now, the studio was called Mar Film in Hungary. The console wasn't big enough to be able to take all those inputs, so we had to hire a truck from Switzerland. So the truck came down to Switzerland... And they had microphones on board and they had a mixer. So we ended up recording most of the score in the truck. It was very, very difficult because we had orchestra, we had drummers, we had keyboard players. They were all to click. You know, I mean, Jerry did a fantastic job because everyone is all set up with closed circuit television and Jerry held the whole thing together. I mean, they could see Jerry conducting on their monitor, but it, it was a very, very ambitious score to do in what was basically a studio that wasn't really equipped to do that kind of thing. And as you can imagine, my work was really cut out.
Paul Talkington. He called me and said, would you like to go to Munich to record a score with a guy called Bruce Broughton, who I'd never heard of at the time. So I said, great. So I went over to Munich and I met Bruce, met him the night before. We had dinner and we got on very well. He was a nice guy. And we, and we had three days of recording Old Man in the Scene. Tombstone was interesting because I knew I'd be recording Tombstone and for, for months I thought it was going to be Jerry. But then as the date got nearer, I heard that Jerry was involved with something else and he had to back out of it, which he probably couldn't have done if it had been, say, a different producer. But the producer of Tombstone was, again, Andrew Vanya, who was involved with the Rambo pictures. 
So as they were mates at that time, I suppose Andrew understood and, and let Jerry go. Well, anyway, the film was then offered to Bruce. But Bruce only had 12 days to write the score because the vinyl dub with music was going to happen after the 12 days. So basically what happened is Bruce did do the score in 12 days, but when we started recording, we couldn't go to multi-track and mix it the following week because the following week it had to be in the theatre. They were actually doing the dub while we were recording the score. So basically, we had to go straight to 5.1 live off the floor. No mixing, nothing. Obviously, it was mixed live, but we flew by the seat of our pants, really, because we had to go away on the day. And each night, all the cues, say we recorded, say, 12 cues during the day, those 12 cues were then sent by courier to Los Angeles, and they were dubbing those 12 cues the very next day as we were carrying on with the score. So there was a lot of pressure there to, to get things done. It's an amazing book. It's got so much energy, it's frightening. And there's some fun things on there, like the cymbal and the jangle piano. You know, it's got a lot of colour. He was very fond of it. And, and the, we had a very good player in London who he, he, he liked. And, and he always tried to use the cymbal as much as he could.
Now, James Fitzpatrick, I first met him when he was more of an executive producer at Salt Screen Records. Now, the first project I did for Salt Screen was an album for CD of Oliver Twist, and that was produced by Dave Wishart of Silver Screen. And that's where I first met James, because he was executive producer on that, and there was just one album. And then later on, when that was out, he then came in and we did an album of a remake of the film score of The Big Country, which was produced by Christopher Palmer with James as executive producer. And then James then decided that he had two experiences with producers and he then decided that he would then start producing himself. So then he went on a roll and we started recording all kinds of CDs, like horror music CDs. That was another project we did shortly after. How it all happened was I was working for Oriole Records, as I mentioned earlier. Oriole Records, three years after I joined, was then taken over by CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System of America. They bought Oriole not because they wanted a small record company, but they wanted a pressing plant in the UK. Because up to that time, all their records were pressed through Philips, but they wanted their own pressing plant. So they bought Oriole Records to get Oriole's pressing plant. That's how the story goes. So then they realized they also, apart from buying a record company and a pressing plant, they ended up also buying a recording studio in New Bond Street. Now, shortly after they took over the company, they built a new studio in London at Whitfield Street near Tottenham Court Road. And for many years, it was called CBS Studios. Then in 1990, Sony of Japan, bought CBS. So then it became 
some studio. It remained Sony Studios for a while, and then Sony decided they didn't want to manage studios anymore. So they invited two managers who ran a very successful studio in New York called The Hit Factory. So they came over and they did a refit and ran us for three years, not very successfully because the New York ideas really didn't work in London. Sony then realized this wasn't working, so that partnership with the Hip Factory New York ended. They then decided to give the studio its own identity. So it was then renamed Whitfield Street Studios, and they put an accountant in there. It worked out very well for a while, and then Sony then decided that they just didn't want to be involved in studios anymore. They just wanted to end everything to do with studios. So the studio was actually closed, and that was the end. And I was made redundant. It was more of a shame because it was one of the great rooms in London. And, and everybody loved that room. I mean, I mean, people were devastated when they heard it was closing down. And, that, and, now, and now, of course, it's a, another office block. I do remember a streetcar named Desire, yes, Alex North. That was something for Varese Saraband, if I'm correct. It was a live recording. We recorded the whole thing over four sessions. It was just a regular music session. It wasn't mixed. We went straight to two-track on that one. And I'm very proud of it. I think I think it sounds very good. The combination of the, of the jazz and, and the orchestral. Yeah, I think it was very successful. I know a lot of people like it. You, know, you don't tend to play... CDs that you've recorded because you remember the session too much and all things of Tom so you don't listen to them for pleasure but Streetcar Named Desire I actually listen to for pleasure and I can divorce myself from it as an engineer yeah so Robert Townsend will probably be quite pleased to hear
Excalibur sessions were basically record sessions, primarily just to record for a CD. Producer was Douglas Fake. Bruce did all the conducting. They were very straightforward sessions, straight orchestral. There was no electronics or anything like that. They were very straightforward, just takes. Douglas Fake would choose which takes he liked best. We did one score. I think Julius Caesar was recorded at Air Studios. And uh, Ivanhoe was recorded at Abbey Road. I know that.
that was that was a pretty amazing score. That was, it was a very strange lineup. I think we had something like four harps, if I remember rightly. I think it was yeah, it's four harps, and it was mainly brass, a lot of low brass. And I listened to the whole thing the other night, and I thought, wow, I did a good job on that day. <laughs> Masters of the Universe. Yes, I had a bit of a check of life, this one. Um, recorded in Hungary and Munich and mixed in LA. We all went out to Hungary, back to Mar Film again. And this time we were out there with uh, Harry Robinowitz, the famed conductor from England. And also Bill Kidd, who was the producer sent out from Los Angeles, who was Bill Conti, the composer, right-hand man. Bill Conti didn't want to come over. He had other things to do. So he sent Bill and Bill supervised everything. Now, everything started off very well in Hungary. And then Bill started getting a little bit more depressed and depressed. And phone calls kept going backwards and forwards between Bill and Bill Kidd and Bill Conti. Bill Kidd was unhappy with the power of the brass. It just didn't have the weight for him. And there were lots of discussions between... Bill Kidd, Bill Conti, Canon Films, who were paying for the session, and they decided that they were going to abort the sessions and move on somewhere else. Now, we tried to get into London, but we couldn't because there were no studios or orchestras available at that time. So we ended up in Munich at Bavaria Film Studios, and we finished the recording of the score there, and the results were excellent. The German musicians of the Grunky symphony orchestra played very well and everybody left everybody was happy everything went back to la the 24 track tapes went back to la and they were mixed in la by dan wallen
The Mummy was recorded at Air Studios because CBS was too small for the size of orchestra that we had. The keyboards were all pre-recorded in the States and my music editor came over with all the keyboards on his computer which were fed into the desk at the same time as we were recording the orchestra. So we didn't have to worry about electronics. It was a straight symphonic orchestra with an unusual amount of percussion. The one story I remember on that was they were still editing the film in L.A. during while we were doing the score. And there was this huge satellite dish, absolutely massive satellite dish in the Air Studios car park. And the reason it was there was because at the end of every day, they would send out the edited film by satellite for the director, Stephen, to look at. And then Jerry then had to make any changes because of the recuts. So Jerry and Kenny Hall's music editing had to watch the recuts and then make changes for the next day's session. It was one of those, again, like Tombstone, it was one of those sessions where everything was done in a hurry. So there were several things happening at the same time and people making alterations as they went along. It was quite a quite a fun time, really, because we had Brendan Fraser on the sessions, which was quite fun to have actually have the star wandering around. 
And uh, Stephen Summers, the director, apparently was a great Beatles fan, and he got a great kick out of, of meeting George Martin, who came down to the sessions quite often during the week. Stephen came in with some CDs, Beatles CDs, for George to sign. So, I mean, that was a great thrill for Stephen. One of the funny things I can think that happened was when we were recording one of the more kind of Arabian exotic pieces with a lot of percussion, and we had a very funny session musician called Gary Cattell who was on percussion and for a laugh in the tea break he went out and dressed himself up as an Arab and then then he came in and he sat down at the tablets ready to play and the strange thing was we ran through the queue and Jerry still didn't spot that, that he was dressed up as an Arab and it was kind of weird you think well when's he going to notice and then he suddenly was talking about the queue after the first take, and then he suddenly saw Gary and just went into hysterical laughter. So that was a that was a fun time, and then the whole I mean all the sessions were fun, and and of course after recording the orchestra air studios, we then moved over to Sony Studios to do all the choir work. So we were kind of in two venues. We also mixed the music for The Mummy at Tony Studios. Jerry was quite busy doing other things at that time, and he wasn't around for most of the mixing. In fact, I mixed most of it myself, and Jerry used to turn up for the end of the evening and listen to them and either say yes or no, and in most cases it was yes. So that was interesting because I'm normally used to having Jerry sitting next to me, you know, okaying the mixes, but this time I actually did all the mixes and then we just came in at the end and said yes and no. So it was a change of approach, really.
to just to go back to uh, briefly back to the beginning, a legend where I was I was telling people that musicians. I was talking to musicians, and I was saying, "Oh, I said, I said we've got Jerry Goldsmith coming in next week to do some stuff," and nearly all of them said, "You're in for really hard times, very difficult taskmaster." But you know, all the time I worked with him, I've never saw a nurse's grandpa ever, and he was always very nice to me. Basically, my film score career kind of ended with the closing of Sony Studios because I didn't have a room to work in anymore. So that kind of ended it, really. I was freelance for a short time, but it really didn't work out. I mean, I had a couple of jobs where they didn't pay me, so I was disillusioned. So I then kind of decided, well, okay, time's up. So I kind of stopped recording. But, I mean, the door's not closed, it will never be closed. I'll always be a recording engineer. But And I say it's not closed. I mean, I've done a couple of things recently for an old client of mine for a company in Japan. In Japan, they seem to be very keen on Mantovani. And these Mantovani audiophile CDs apparently sell very well in Japan. So I recorded two of these it's not obviously not Mantovani now because he's dead, but it's the Mantovani Orchestra, which basically consists of the best session players in London. So we went to Abbey Road and we recorded two Mantovani albums with the Japanese market. So as I say, I'm still keeping my hand in, so the door's not closed. I suppose the one I'm really proud of, really, is probably my first job with Jerry Goldsmith, which was legend. I'm very proud of that one, and then, and more so because... Everybody seems to like it. So you bump into people and you mention you worked on Legend and they seem to be quite impressed with that, really. And they always, and everybody says, oh, it's the, it's the best score ever. And so it's a nice feeling to have been associated with that. But also at the same time, I like Medicine Man, again, which was Jerry. An interesting story about that is Jerry said to me, he said, you know, the CD's selling really well. And you know who it's selling to? And I said, oh, hello. He says, there's a lot of women are buying you. I mean, I don't know how they know when old women are buying the CD to Medicine Man, but, but that's what he told me. Interesting. So th- those kind of two jump out at me. And Tombstone, which I recorded with Bruce Broughton. I'm, I'm very proud of that one. And, and the reason I'm proud of that one is because it, it wasn't what we call the traditional mixed job. We mixed live straight to 5.1 and it turned out fantastic. And it's one of those things I am proud of because the spontaneity of it all, it's one of those things that I didn't actually think too much about. And sometimes when you don't think about things that much, it usually turns out okay. And then that's really what happened with Tombstone. When Jerry came in, he's, the first words he said to me was, Mike, he said, you're going to have to mix this one. Because it, it didn't have a natural mix that you could capture naturally on, on a few microphones. It had to be worked at. So every, everything had to be mic'd up. And he didn't want the percussion to sound orchestral like it was in the room with the orchestra. He wanted it very tight and up front. So all the percussion had to be boothed to achieve that separation. So it was one of those jobs where everything had to be mixed. And I had to create sounds for the keyboard, special sounds that he wanted, which we use with outboard equipment. So it was a bit of a challenge, really. It was more like say you're recording a rock band it was it was that kind of treatment but i was very proud of it i think i think it sounds wonderful and you still got that orchestral sound as well the trees is my favorite track i think it, i think it's called it yeah.
I do miss uh, the, the film industry, yes. Um, probably I miss the, the social side of it more than probably the, the, the technical side of it. Obviously, you meet wonderful people when you're working, and I miss them. But I also, in, 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 a, in a funny sort of way, I, I miss that both. There's nothing more exciting than, than sitting at a 72-channel Mead console looking through the window, and there's 17 musicians sitting there playing. And your job is to sit there and record them. I mean, that's, I can tell you, that's a, that's a hell of a buzz. It's wonderful. And I miss that. I miss that kind of buzz, that excitement. Don't think there's anything around that I do now that, that, that really ranks with that.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to TeePublic to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>